Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, friend of the firm, Pete Kazanji, uh, founder and CEO of Atrium. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. So Pete, we're going to get into sales, we're going to go to market, uh, but by way of introduction, uh, why don't you sort of trace your path uh, that enabled you to become uh, so knowledgeable uh, about these topics? Yeah, so I'm kind of an accidental sales leader. Um, my background is actually in product management and product marketing. Uh, my first job in tech was at VMware. I worked in product management and mar- product marketing for VMware Fusion, VMware Workstation, VMware Infrastructure, uh, et cetera. And then eventually started my own uh, recruiting software company called Talentbin, which is kind of like LinkedIn recruiter for the whole internet. Um, it's a recruiting automation and search uh, company. Eventually acquired by Monster Worldwide in 2014. But at Talentbin, I really went from being initial kind of like business founder to first sales rep, then sales manager, then sales leader, really trying to like figure out how to do go to market and how to do sales. Um, because if we didn't, the company was going to die. Um, company was bought by Monster. And then after that, kind of my, my sales, <laughs> um, my, my sales chops really kind of grew there. I ended up writing a book on sales for founders or ended up writing a book on startup sales for founders called founding sales. It's essentially the, the book I wish I, I had when I was trying to figure things out at, at Talentbin. Uh, I run the nation's largest sales operations and sales leadership community. It's called Modern Sales. And my current software company, a sales performance analysis software company called Atrium. Um, I also do a little bit of angel investing in, unsurprisingly, SaaS, MarTech, sales tech, et cetera, on the side. Yeah. And so... Uh, there's a bunch of topics I want to get there. First, let's spend a couple minutes, uh, talking about the, the, the talent space and then the sales tech space, uh, putting on your investor perspective. So having built a, a talent bin and evaluated a ton of companies in, the, in the talent recruiting space, how have you sort of made sense of what's the opportunity in the space? Uh, you know, why is it, why has LinkedIn been sort of like the only major, you, you know, decacorn in the space? Glassdoor was unicorn, but, uh, how have you sort of made sense of what's happened in the talent space up till now? And, do you think that in the next five years, things will change? Are you optimistic or do you sort of say, hey, that space is hard to have really big outcomes? Oh, man, you're making me you know, have to pretend that I have a reason thesis on this. So I think the talent space, to quote my friend John Bischke, who's the CEO of Entello, um, I feel that the talent space is kind of where the sales and marketing tech space was about you know 10 to 15 years ago. And specifically, what I mean by that is that what you haven't yet seen is a specialization of tooling for specific use cases. So if you look at sales tech or MarTech, what you've got is a bunch of various point solutions, each of which is extremely valuable. Um, you know, as an example, look at the sales tech space like, you know, outreach and sales loft for sales engagement, chorus and gong for, you know, call recording and voice apps. Yeah, and voice ops um, is it's a portfolio company. Yes. Oh, pardon <laughs> but me. They're all great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like essentially, what you get is these categories that grow they grow over time, and and really kind of the key of them is that by virtue of having a shared uh, database of of customer state, um, in this case, the kind of the monopolist there is is Salesforce, but of course Microsoft Dynamics and other folks as well. 
it enables um, those various use cases. You don't really have that yet um, in talent, kind of the the. And so this is why you kind of see ATSs like applicant tracking systems turn into these like big monolithic beasts that are have have kind of like everything associated with them. Now the good news is the the newer school companies there like the greenhouses and the levers are are more API driven. So they're like, hey, you know, we're going to be this core thing. We're going to allow other people to like tie into us and handle these various use cases. On the HRAS side, um, Sapling is a good example of that as well. But it's it's like pretty early, right? So if you think about all the folks that hang off of a CDP or hang off of a CRM, it's a lot. Um, whereas that's quite not quite there yet in HR tech and um, both on the HR side and also the recruiting side. But I think it's getting there. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you wrote the founding sales book in what, 2015? Uh, yeah, so I... <laughs> Geez, I mean, it hasn't shipped quite yet. I think this is the kind of a definitional like quibble. Like, we don't actually have a hard copy of it yeah. yet, but it's been on it's been online as like a Google Doc that gets shared around since 2014 as I was writing it in progress, and now it um, it has its own website at FoundingSales.com since like you know end of 2019. But yeah, like totally. along that arc. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess I'm curious if you wrote that book today, what, what would be different? Another version of that question is. Were you excited in sales tech? Have there been things that have, you know, changed the, the field in some way or, or, or have the potential to, to do so? You know, I think that the additional sales tech, whether it's sales engagement software, conversational intelligence, or, um, you know, uh, CPQ software or whatever, really what this just, it, it's like optimization, um, at the frontier of selling and, and really the biggest challenge, at least for startups and founders is not around technology adoption. It's around just like very basic things. Like, am I comfortable talking to people? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like those are the major failure modes. When you, when you talk to founders, um, the, the major failure modes are not technology driven. The major failure modes are more just acumen and understanding driven all those technologies are super fantastic and driving, um, you know, my, my software company is a great example of this is like, you know, advanced analytics that does kind of sales, sales analysis of, of your reps for you. Um, you know, this drives performance of, of larger sales organizations, but at least as far as startups are concerned, most of it just kind of comes down to the like early blocking and tackling. Totally. And so, one of the principles I, I took from, from founding sales is this idea of when you're starting a company and it's just you, you need to make sure that you do all the sales yourself, that you know how to, how to do it well. Uh, and then a mistake that some people make is they try to, once they do that, they maybe scale too quickly or hire too many reps too quickly. And the idea that you need to hire maybe one, maybe, maybe two, you know, people to do it for you, you need to train them. And once they can do it super well or as well as you, that's when you scale. What would you edit to that characterization of? Yeah, I th- I think that was a very good cliff notes <laughs> there for sure. You should still go to foundingsales.com yes, and read the totally. book. <laughs> and the second way is let's talk about some other principles from the book, other takeaways that that no, founder should. No, but I I think you nailed it. And I think really the biggest nut there is that early on it is is the responsibility of the founder to to prove at least the beginnings of the initial sales motion. And the reason why that's really important is because it's a natural extension of the writings that Eric Reese and Steve Blank have done around 
customer development flows into early sales. So what you're doing when you're doing your, your customer interviews, when you're doing your customer development, you're, you're learning about the market. You, and, and you have this a subject matter expertise in the market and how your, your offering solves the pains associated therewith that nobody really else has. And so if, if you're doing that and then you're trying to you know, toss it over the wall to, um, some poor account executive with a great, uh, plaid shirt, like the one that I'm wearing right now, you're really missing out on both feedback loops that are, will inform your product, but also, you know, you're playing this kind of grandiose game of telephone where you know all these things and then you're trying to communicate that to somebody who's then going to communicate it to the, to the prospect. And it's just, it's just not efficient. It, it leads to lots of problems. And this is why Steve Blank, um, I think in his book, he says, you know, startups don't get to scale until they fired, fired at least one, maybe two VPs of sales. And I think the, the response to that is, well, how about if we just like don't fire those VP of sales and instead, um, you know, uh, concretize the, the sales motion, the initial sales motion ourselves, prove it, prove that somebody else other than the founder can do it. And, th- and then at that point, now we're ready to export that to other, yeah. other salespeople. One of the things I, 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 I mean, I was spending some time with the startup and they had this sort of interesting t- technology. Um, but they were, uh, curious on who should be their first customer. Should it be, uh, startups? What, what kind of startups? Should it be SMBs? What kind of SMBs? Should it be more enterprise? How, how do you sort of navigate maybe in the beginning? How do you even pick your, your customer? Yeah. So I think the, the answer to that question would be, or what I would say to that startup is, who did you talk to? And, and so I think that this is one of the things that we run into as an industry full of people who get really excited about technologies. Don't get me wrong. I get yeah. excited about like cool new shit. But the important thing is like, we don't want to have a bunch of hammers running around looking for nails. Instead, what we want to understand is like, Hey, what is your problem right here? Oh, I need, you know, to hang this picture. Oh, okay, well, maybe the right solution for that is not a hammer with a nail, but instead of, you know, command strip or whatever the hell, um, that would be. So I think that my feedback to them would be, okay, how does this product or sorry, how does this technology, what, what is the business pain that this technology resolves? And for whom is that business pain the greatest? So like Paul Graham had this tweet yesterday and I thought it was, it was good where he said, Hey, you know, um, if, if your startup is responsible, if your startup relies on large companies, um, in order to access making a decision in order to access users, um, be careful about that because large companies will, or he said the, the default will be that you will run out of money while waiting for the large company to make a decision. And he's actually not wrong. Um, because like large companies don't like to make decisions and there's lots of stakeholders and so on and so forth. And the interesting thing though, is that large companies oftentimes have really big problems that only large companies have that are extraordinarily valuable. And so sometimes like if you're solving a problem that only really large companies have, that's okay. Just be aware of that and be capitalized for that convert in general. I prefer a SMB based or mid market direct sale, go to market. But a good example of this would be like blend, right? Blend the, um, the like loan automation and kind of like underwriting automation software company, you know, for the most part, they, they target really high end banks and like loan processors. 
Because it turns out that like the loan processing industry in the United States and the credit processing industry in the United States is um, it's really clustered in like a few dozen providers. So if you want to attack that space, like you got to get good at enterprise sales. So I think my question to your, the, the startup in, in, in question would be like, cool, who has the pain that this, this technology resolves? Who has the most pain and who's easiest to get in front of? Yeah. And talk about the, the, the difference between selling to those different types of constituents or these different, different types of customers and how founders or, or teams need to train themselves accordingly. Oh, to like large enterprise versus yeah. mid market. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, so the, 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 the term that, uh, that is useful here is, is what's known as a, a sales motion, which my joke is, is that this is something that we salespeople, um, use as a term to describe the sales process, um, just as a way to kind of make it sound like sexier and <laughs> more arcane or what have you. But, but it's actually, it's, it's a good term of art. And so really every, every company, and, and every product that, that is attacking, a that is attacking a space has a sales motion, which essentially is just like a set of actions that are taken, a set of stakeholders that are engaged that eventually drive towards, um, a transaction, ideally 10 to 30% of the time. And so in the, in the case of an enterprise sale, um, that sales motion is going to be long and slow and it's going to involve lots of, lots of stakeholders and it's going to involve, you know, politics and it's going to involve, considerations as to, you know, am I going to get fired if I make this, if I buy this thing and who's got budgetary authority and it's probably not going to have a lot of consideration for the end user. That's how those sales motions work. Uh, one of my favorite case studies of kind of like this, these three different tiers of, of go to market is, um, three survey companies. So Medallia, Qualtrics and SurveyMonkey. Um, so Medallia started out, they all really focus on survey software. And one of the biggest cases there is, is collecting user feedback. And Medallia started out in very high end ASP or high average selling price enterprise sale. Uh, Qualtrics was focused on more of an SMB mid market, um, sales, sales motion with a very small average selling price to start. And then SurveyMonkey was, um, consumer prosumer. They were kind of an example of like very easy in, um, kind of pre Dropbox, Dropbox, if you will. So the mid market, you know, mid market direct sale is more, more you're interacting with a single person. You're in, interacting with maybe a couple people and, um, you know, it's a, a more compressed sales cycle. Uh, and then of course there's the prosumer, uh, SMB one where you're interacting with just like one person and, and it's almost just kind of like a consumer sale yeah. where, Hey, does this solve your problem? Okay, cool. You want to buy? Right. <laughs> yeah. Talk, uh, you know, bottoms up is hot right now. We were talking about Notion, Figma, uh, Airtable, a, b- a bunch of these types of companies. Uh, h- how should founders be thinking about, uh, sales and building sales orgs, uh, and, or just go to market broadly in the context of, of bottoms up? Yeah. So bottoms up is super powerful. Um, it's, it's probably, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest things that's impacting business software right now. And, and mainly what's happening there is that the same dynamics that applied to open source and developer tools previously is now coming to, to business software. So, you know, God bless the, you know, the software engineers out there, but there's only so many of them, right? So it turns out there's a lot of other people who have like business problems and need to use software as well. And so really what the crux of it is, is that 
the person who has the problem can identify that they have a problem. They can research the solution to that problem. And they can, the phrase that I like to use for this is they can permissionlessly start using it. Um, and so that, that was something that was really just like developer centric historically, but now that's applying everywhere. So somebody would be like, Hey, you know, I really need to design a poster and I can Google how to design a poster. And lo and behold, I land, I, I see a landing page for Canva. And I can click through to that and like, lo and behold, it, I land on a template for a poster and, and all of a sudden I'm like designing a poster with Canva and like what happened. Um, and just as a product marketer, or as a marketer, even if I'm at a big ass company that has design resources internally, I'm using Canva, yeah. right? Um, so that's extraordinarily powerful. And so the, I think that the, the crux here is that the, these business tools, whether it's Figma or Zoom or Slack or what have you can really learn a lot from those early developer tools and open source companies. So, um, a, a woman who led sales at a company called Xamarin, Stephanie Schatz, I think she, her Stephanie Schatz Friedman now, um, she really kind of hit me to this when I was doing a customer interview with her at Xamarin where the, the, the move is less around like, Hey, do you want a demo? Do you want a demo? Do you want a demo? When somebody downloads the software, it's more like helping somebody on their way yeah. to getting to utility. And so I think one of the biggest problems associated with this is that you get these, you get folks who look at this from the standpoint of, Oh, the product, the product allows for install and use by itself. That will probably be the entirety of my business model. And so this is like the, um, the like Twilio slash Stripe, hey, we just publish documentation and, and people just buy it, right? They just like buy it on their own or um, or the Stuart Butterfield, like, oh yeah, we're Slack. We don't have salespeople. At the time that he said that, they actually had a, like a, a ton of salespeople. And I, see, I think that's actually a really um, problematic way of thinking about it. Really what you want is your, your product-led growth is marketing. It drives inbound. You, your product gets people to initial utility but in order to drive usage throughout the organization or get to larger transactions, you really have to have a sales organization. The most successful organizations, examples of that have been Zoom, Slack, like the second gen of this insofar as like, you know, Dropbox was great. It's obviously a very impressive company. They didn't heavily invest in an enterprise sales or direct sales organization at quite the same scale as say like uh, a box. Yeah. And so I think that like the Zooms and the Slacks and like the second gen of those folks have, have like learned from those lessons. Um, and so they should all like send a fruit basket to <laughs> Dropbox, um, or like Yesware, some of these organizations that maybe, um, had a really cool inbound, um, lead gen funnels, but didn't maybe capitalize on them the way that, that probably should have because we've all learned from it. Yeah. Talk, talk about pipe hitting and, and what's so uh, important or interesting about, about that. I don't know how about how like interesting it is necessarily, but there are some, there are some organizations or there are some businesses where, you know, or sorry, there are some, there are some business pains where the only way you're going to be able to get in front of those, the, the buyer is a direct sale, like getting, you know, inbound or sorry, outbound, knocking down the door, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that, with the, the rise of product led, that's maybe, you know, degrading a little bit there, but I still think that there are, you know, it, it is an important skill 
if that is something that your organization, if that is a business plan that you're, or if that is a market that your organization is going after. So an example of this would be, you know, MemSQL, right? They make amazing in-memory database software that they sell to like large organizations that run their own data centers. So it turns out like, you know, it's, it, it very much requires an outbound, you know, uh, sale where you're getting in front of these, you know, these, these very high end, um, uh, IT, you know, IT, uh, IT professionals. And the good news is, is that when they make a transaction, it's like a $500,000 transaction. So I think it's just, it, it's one of those things where, um, it's not, maybe not the most glamorous or sexy thing in the world, but if that is the thing, so a good example of this would be like, you know, blend or, or workday back in the day. So like, if that's the, if that's the, the, the market that you're attacking, it's just something you got to do. Totally. And let's talk about building a, a, a sales org a little bit. Like once the founders got it, once they trained a couple people to, to do it well, what, what are the mistakes you see, uh, founders typically make? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's related to onboarding. Maybe it's related to something else. Um, that they make as they, as they try to scale. Yeah. So once you have a couple sales reps who are successfully repeatedly selling your solution, that's kind of the point at which, you know, the, if you're not adding more salespeople, um, the, you're really kind of eating opportunity costs at that, at that point. So I think there's kind of two major failure modes there. Um, one would be not, you know, not scaling, um, and in that regard, kind of like you know, continuing to sell yourself. The other one would be, you know, scaling up too rapidly. And I think there are some pretty good examples of this. Uh, Zenefits is obviously the best example of this where, you know, scaling wildly before you know exactly what the unit economics are. In the, in the case of Zenefits, the biggest problem, of course, was the unit economics of ongoing customer delivery. Um, but there are some organizations where the unit economics of customer acquisition even if their margins are good, are problematic where you, you know, add a bunch of salespeople who, you know, they sell enough, but they don't sell. Generally speaking, you want to see a, a four to one or five to one ratio of revenue that is being acquired to, um, to sales rep, uh, compensation associated with that revenue. So at the cost of sale. So scaling up, scaling up a bunch of salespeople who, you know, are selling twice or three times as much as their, as their salary is, you know, is, is another kind of failure mode there. So I think that those are kind of, those are, those are some initial you know, things to look out for. Um, I think the other thing, the other kind of major failure mode there would be hiring the wrong first sales leader. And so the, the two kind of major failure modes that I see there are one, hiring a sales leader to figure out the sales motion for you, which we kind of addressed already. Like it's on, it's on you to figure out that initial sales motion and, and maybe, you know, enclose 10, 20, 30 customers uh, on your own. The second problem there is really just hiring somebody who's just very off pattern. And so normally in an early stage organization, what you're looking for is somebody who has, recently been directly managing reps or is maybe a manager of managers. So managing uh, a sales manager who's managing, I don't know, say like six reps and managing another SDR manager who's managing uh, four SDRs or sorry, eight SDRs or what have you. The the big failure there is like, Hey, I'm going to hire a CRO at a big co yeah. where 
really the stage that you're at is you need somebody who's going to manage the, going to take your two reps and take it to eight uh, and be very tactical and used to making slides, writing email templates, yeah. um, being on calls versus being in meetings and being in meetings. Yeah. Uh, so those are kind of the big, and you see this all the time where, um, it's like, it's super easy to see. We're like, Oh my God, that person who was like, was that a public company is going to join that series a or series B company. And like, you just know that it's going to be a disaster. And so I won't, you know, name, name examples here, but it's just a very repeatable kind of yeah. failure mode. And so what, what are the, the right frameworks for, as a couple of things, one is when to hire uh, a CRO or the sort of different levels with, within sales. And then two, what, 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 what are we looking for in sales reps versus VP of sales versus CRO versus other sort of frameworks? Um, yeah. So I think it really kind of is contingent on what stage you're at. So if you're at the point, well, here, let's, let's back it up. If you're at the point where you are selling yourself and you're now want to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm selling this repeatedly myself. Now I need a couple other reps to sell this as well. What you're looking for there is you know, early stage sellers who ideally are at um, a, a company that is, you know, like three years ahead of you. So the example that I like to use here is if you're, you were asking about recruiting tech earlier. If you're in the recruiting tech space, um, so say you're like a company like Top Funnel, right? They do really interesting um, automated recruiting, um, and sourcing messaging. Well, so like hiring, um, successful reps out of a, a lever or a greenhouse or what have you is probably going to be your right approach there. Hiring somebody who sells Yelp or, uh, Yext or some SMB centric media product to come and sell $25,000, you know, marketing automation software it's going to be a misfit because those, those Yelp sellers are great at what they do, but what they do, what they spend their time doing is having lots of conversations with small business owners and kind of conversely in the case where, like, you know, if you're hiring somebody who has a slower sales motion to work on a, on a faster sales motion. So that's not going to be a fit. So look for sales motion fit, look for stage fit. And then if you can have subject matter expertise overlap. So for instance, you know, if you're uh, hiring for a recruiting tech software company, Yes, go for like a lever or a, or a greenhouse or what have you. If you're in marketing automation, I think you probably see this with a great company, a, a modern, uh, ESP software providers, uh, iterable. If you look at the historic, like if you look at their, their sales reps, it's a lot of like Marketo people, a lot of responses people, what have you. So what you, what you don't want to do is like then jump all the way up to the dinosaur. Say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm hiring for, I have a new recruiting software. Um, that I'm selling, I'm going to go hire somebody from Oracle Taleo. It's yeah. probably like the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, uh, when is the right time for zeros? Sorry. Did you, did you just say that? No. Okay. Oh, the, the right time for a, a, a zero. Well, I mean, you know, titles are funny things, yeah. right? And so really the way to think about it is what is the job to be done? And so if you're early and you have two successful sales reps that are repeatedly selling, well, you know, the person that you're hiring is probably a sales manager at, you know, at Lever or at Greenhouse or at MuleSoft or at Snowflake right now. You can call them your CRO, 
that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. What they're going to be doing is they're going to be managing three reps to go to go to eight reps and hire a bunch of SDRs. You can call them your VP of sales. You can call them your head of sales. But I think the important thing here is to focus on the thing that needs to needs to be done. Um, now, if you're later stage, right? So the traditional definite the, the actual definition of something like a CRO is is an executive who is responsible for marketing, sales, and customer success, so all revenue. Um, so if that's what that person is going to be responsible for, great, go go crazy. Just just be very clear on what you're you're hiring for, um, and be clear to them as to what it is that they're they're going to be doing. Yeah. On that note, let's segue a little bit into uh, companies that scale sales organizations well versus ones that that don't. What, what separates the two, or how should we think about scaling in the context of of a sales org? So I think that organizations that have scaled their sales organizations very well are the ones who, uh, to use a phrase that's becoming more popular, uh, nail it before they scale it. And so just making sure that you have the the beginnings of a repeatable sales motion. So one, it, it's fine to have account executives that can repeatedly close customers, but do you know that you can repeatedly fill fill their calendars, for instance. And then moreover, once customers are, are closed, are you confident? Do you know that when they go off to CS that they, they get to success, they, they're high NPS, they're high, they, they renew and they expand, etc. So validating the, the organizations that scale the most successfully are those who kind of take kind of like pause points and say, Hey, cool. Um, I know that I can repeatedly sell this myself. Wait a minute. Are customers getting to success? Oh no, I'm throwing a bunch of customers over to the wall to customer success. And they're not actually getting to utility and they're not, you know, they're not expanding and they're low NPS. Uh Oh, we probably shouldn't throw more customers over the wall to customer success or similarly. Hey, cool. Let's add another, you know, we have an account executive who is having success right now or two account executives that are having success. Let's add two more. Oh, wait a minute. Um, we don't have enough opportunities to feed them. And the initial sources of leads have not been able to scale in order to keep them fully utilized. Uh-oh, probably shouldn't add more account executives. Probably should figure out how to ramp those sources of leads. So it's really... Um, one of the books that I love to recommend to folks to read is a, a book called The Goal. Uh, it's a manufacturing research book written as a novel. Um, but really sales organizations are just factories. There's revenue acquisition factories. And so you've got, um, essentially assembly line and you just got to make sure that all parts of the assembly line are operating effectively. Because if you, if one part of the assembly line is like messed up, then you're going to have a problem. Yeah. And what is the best way to think about the relationship between sales and, and customer success? I mean, who's responsible for renewal or how do we make sure that these orgs both, uh, you know, work well together? Yeah. So, so I think the best way to think about them is just really kind of the part of the, the part of the same org. Um, and then this like historical concept of them being different, like segmented is really something that's kind of disappearing over time. Um, a gentleman named Jocko Vandercooley, um, has, uh, runs a company called winning by designs. They're a go-to-market consulting agency. And so he has some pretty good writings on this, 
around, uh, he calls it like not the funnel, but the bow tie where what you're doing is you're bringing people down a funnel into a transaction. And then the other side of the, you know, the expanding bow tie is they get to value and then they start expanding their usage, expanding their usage. So generally what you want is a lot of symbiosis between sales and customer success. So to your question about, okay, well then who, what is the division of responsibilities between um, upsell and expansion and renewal and what have you? Well, first off, a hallmark of a modern sales organization is uh, specialization and um, kind of like division of labor. And so the reason why we've been able to ha- do that a la a, um, you know, an assembly line is because of like modern CRMs where we can say, oh, okay, cool. An SDR creates an opportunity. They hand it off to the account executive. The account executive works on it. They closes the deal, hands it off to customer success. Um, so that, so taking advantage of, of specialization and, and um, division of labor is actually very powerful. The thing is you just have to make sure that it's very clear who owns what <laughs> and where the handoffs are. Um, and so in terms of what are the best ways of like, you know, splitting up responsibilities between AEs and CS. Generally speaking, um, what I find is that account executives owning the initial transaction, obviously, and then at least for the first some amount of time, maybe it's a quarter, maybe it's a year being responsible for upsells because usually what the account executive understands is where the other opportunities for, for commercial transaction are in the organization, but that the customer success is responsible for success and also renewals. Mainly because what you want is you, you want your account executives continuing to hunt and, and go after, go after new business. So that's like usually a design pattern that I see. That being said, if you have a, a larger, slower sales motion where, you know, the upsell isn't going to happen until year two or year three, then sometimes keeping that relationship with the account executive makes sense. You just have to make sure that their quota expands over time to take into consideration that they have all these existing customers like in their backpack, if you will. Um, so they just can't like, you know, eat out on their, their previous customers. Totally. How about, uh, how sales interfaces with sort of the rest of go to market? Perhaps let, let's focus on product market a, a little bit. Maybe you can talk a bit about product marketing. Maybe you talk a little bit about pricing and how founders should be thinking about, uh, what are the right frameworks to think about pricing? Yeah. I mean, wow. Pr- pricing's a, pricing's a tough one. Early, early on, I think, Pricing is one of your lever, one of your best levers to drive transactions and to drive customer acquisition in a, in an agile way without requiring engineering resources. So you can have, so, so for instance, you might actually have somebody's like, yeah, you know what? I don't have as much need as, as, as your offering can, can resolve for me. I don't have that much pain. And of course the response to that might be, Oh, okay. Well, let's just charge you for exactly how much. Like pain is, is resolved. And do you actually need to turn off incremental features or what have you in order to, to support that? No, you can just charge them less. Yeah. Like they may not know the difference. Um, so I think that, um, early pricing, you, usually it's best to start low, um, index it off of this is why having a beta, uh, a set of beta customers that, where you have instrumented the value that is being consumed uh, and and gained is very helpful because then what you can do is turn around to uh, future prospects and say, look, I know that you have this many account executives and or 
let's, let's pretend we're sales loft. I know that you have this many SDRs and that like, this is going to allow them to do this much more activity. And it's going to drive this many more meetings that are being created. And I know that this, the value of that is this based on the, you know, 50 existing customers I have, and I, I should be able to charge you, charge you for that. So starting with an ROI driven pricing model that doesn't diverge substantially from how your buyer thinks about purchasing. Um, one of the things I like to say is that only one and only one or two innovations at a time. So if, if you're, if your customer is used to buying based on seats or if they're based or they're used to buying based on like API calls or what have you try to align with how they think about this. Um, just because the thing that you're trying to prove is that they're going to, you know, consume, consume your product and get utility out of it as opposed to like consume your product, get utility out of it. And by the way, wrap their mind around this entire new, entirely new pricing model. So once you've got that going, then it's kind of like what you want to do is push the boundaries of, of, of pricing and, and see if you can, you know, just keep raising your prices until you get to the point where people are consistently saying no and at that point back off. Yeah. How about messaging? What's the right framework to think about? Yeah. So, so really where, where your messaging should come from in your, in your initial customer development, when you're figuring out how people address the problem that you're solving, um, sorry, the, the, how people address the problem that you're seeking to solve. Usually what will end up happening is like people will tell you the, the various pains that they're having and the set like and the sub pains associated therewith. And so based on those, those interviews and those conversations, that's where you will choose to deploy your engineering resources to build features that then solve those, those pain points. And so then really each of those, those features that then tie to those pain points then kind of become their own messaging bucket. So it really like good messaging starts out at, at basics, just explaining the thing that you built in the context of the problem that you discovered initially. And so, you know, getting highfalutin or on that ends up being usually where people get wrapped around the axle is like they're, they're, you know, building a platform, blah, 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 blah. Um, as opposed to like, look, you got this problem right here. Like we have this thing that solves the shit out of it and, and does it wildly better than the way that you do it right now. Oh, you, you have this sub problem right here. Um, that's cool. Our, 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 you know, our offering attacks that sub problem in this way that solves it in this way that is, you know, five X better than, than how you're currently solving it or, or the opportunity cost that you're eating right now. Yeah. Going back to building a, a sales org for a second, what is the right way of sort of managing it, making sure that people are set up for success or, or even doing well? They're just, like what metrics are, are important to think about for measuring sales effectiveness, efficiency, et cetera, or frameworks? The things that are, so the first thing to do when measuring the effectiveness of a sales organization is to recognize that it can be measured, yeah. <laughs> which is oftentimes like a big, um, you know, a, a big step up for a, a lot of folks. And then really what you're just doing is, uh, breaking down your sales motion and the associated actions into things that can be measured. Kind of the thing we were saying before about a sales organization is really just a, a revenue acquisition factory. So 
some some basic things there might be like new new opportunities that folks are engaging like how many new deals are they having are they engaging per time period if you're a higher velocity organization that might be per week or per month if you're a slower sales velocity organization it might be per quarter so new things coming in the activity associated with working those things and then outflow as well so new opportunities new, you know, first customer meetings, total customer meetings, and even just like raw activity. How many emails are people sending? How many calls are, are being done? And then how much pipeline, how many opportunities they have ongoing, how much pipeline, how many opportunities are advancing, and then efficiency metrics like what is their win rate? What is the average sale price? And then those are like the basics. So I think that the important thing is start, yeah. right? Like, and you don't have to, you don't have to stand up a, an ornate uh, analytics uh, harness necessarily. You just start with a whiteboard if you're if you're at, at super basics. But the important thing is to decompose what the the actions are that are being done, and then start keeping track of them. Yeah, and what's what's the right framework for thinking about uh, setting up comp across a comp sort of system across a sales org? Yeah. So so the generally speaking a a standard sales compensation uh, or SaaS compensation plan will be a uh, 50-50 split between base compensation and variable compensation. And then, um, so then the question, of course, is oftentimes what you can pay is contingent on the efficiency of your sales motion. And so there's like a little bit of a circularity there where if it turns out that it takes you know, five customer facing meetings in order to uh, sell your solution. And um, you know, the average sale price is $20,000 and there's, you know, there's really only room for 15 customer facing meetings a week. Well, maybe one of your sales reps can sell for like $50,000 of software a month. Okay. If that's the case, then they're going to be selling about $600,000 of software a year. And, it, and so um, a 10%, Commission on that would be around 60, 60 grand with a, which if it's 50 split might be $120,000. So in order to get to a, so $120,000 might sound like, Hey, okay, that might be, that, that sounds really great. If I live in Salt Lake City, yeah. it might not sound all that great for a sales professional if they live in San Francisco or New York or what have you. So then the question might be like, okay, well, who can you get for that amount of money? And, and where. So I think the important thing, like compensation, at least economically, um, sustainable compensation for, for your company kind of descends from how revenue intense your, um, you know, your product can be in the, in the existing market. And, and so in general, what you're going to be seeing is, uh, sales reps expecting a 50 50 split with 10% commission. And so if, it, if, if you're in a market where in, in order for somebody to sustain themselves and pay for their, you know, pay for their housing and pay for their food and, and, and save like a mid market sales rep has to cost $160,000, that might not be economically viable. So this is why you see lower ASP software, um, lower ASP providers like, you know, Yelp moving their sales organizations to Phoenix or Denver or, or Chicago or what have you, even higher ASP companies. So 
like a company like iterable has so, uh, has account executives here in San Francisco, but they also have a sales organization in Denver as well. Yeah. As we're, as we're building out this organization, how, how do we make sure that we do ref- referral-based hiring well? Like what separates the orgs from who do it well from those who don't? The, the organizations that do referral uh, recruiting well um, do it super intentionally, right? Where they sit people down, they go through their networks. Um, the same way that organizations that do referral um prospecting to the same sort of thing. Like there are, there are software that are very helpful. Like there's a company called teamable that allows organizations to, um, kind of, uh, gain together all their networks and, and recruit out of them. But it really requires somebody to say like, Hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be very um, proactive in, in sitting down with Eric and saying, Hey, wonderful, Eric, you've been at the organization about a month. Um, I'm sure you're really stoked right now. You're in your honeymoon period. Let's identify a bunch of people out of your LinkedIn network or your Facebook network that would be great SDR candidates or great AE candidates. And let's fill a spreadsheet with them. And then I'm going to reach out to them. Yeah, totally. And, uh, and so we're, we're hiring the people. How do we set them up for success in terms of creating an onboarding process that, that gets the most out of them? Um, what, what do the great orgs who do that well do? The orgs that do a good job of onboarding. So first are intentional about it and delineate a curriculum for it. Um, so, Hey, this is what week one is going to look like. This is what week two is going to look like. This is what week three is going to look like. This is what week four is going to look like. Rap to FM for some freestyle rap uh, training. Right. Exactly. Obviously (laughs) that'd be very important in week one and two. Um, yeah. So having, having a curriculum, being thoughtful about it, having materials associated there with, um, actually compelling that the new, the new hires do it, that you're authenticating that they're doing it, that you have exit criteria associated with them being pitch certified or them being uh, demo certified or what have you. So a lot of organizations, the failures that organizations will have is they'll say, Hey, I want you to get to success. And then you say, okay, well, what does success look like? Well, it looks like a, a demo that looks like this. It looks like a, you know, a, a, a slide presentation that looks like this. It looks like objection handling that looks like this. Oh, okay, cool. Do you have that demo uh, script scripted out? Oh, you don't? Okay, well, then how the hell is a new rep going to learn the demo if you haven't bulleted it out in a Google Doc, right? Um, oh, you don't. You actually don't have a slide deck? Oh, okay. So I think the first thing is systematizing what, what does work and collateralizing it. Then the next thing is, is that actually compelling people to do it. It's just like a playbook. I mean, you're a Michigan guy, right? So like, you know, the Jim Harbaugh or, um, and actually from Jersey, uh, too. So like, you know, any football team is going to have their playbook. It's not like in the air, it's written down, it's laminated. Um, and so having that systematized and then, and then drilling people on the execution thereof is the thing that differentiates organizations that have new folks that get to success quickly versus folks that flounder and maybe don't have success. Yeah. Is there anything you think we didn't cover or that you're like, Oh, it'd be cool to leave the founder, but any topic that we didn't get to? No, I just, I think that um, there's lots of really great resources out there for people to learn about go to market. And so for different stages. So if you're, if you're just starting out a really great resource is my book, it's at foundingsales.com. The whole text of the book is there. You don't have to buy it. It's just available. It's like open sourced. Um, that's really the basics. 
Um, other resources for just, you know, getting rad at sales would be, there's a book called Cracking the Sales Management Code by, um, Jason Jordan. It's really fantastic. Uh, there's another book on, um, there's a couple of books on sales development excellence. Uh, one is the sales development playbook is written by Trish Bertuzzi. Another one is called leading sales development. It's by Jeremy Donovan and Elia Homison. Um, those are all really fantastic resources for people who are trying to figure out, um, after you've figured out your initial sales motion, which is what founding sales is all about. Um, these are ones that are for systematizing your, your go to market and, and managing your sales organization. Yeah. For people who want to go deeper, uh, where else can you point them in terms of just finding more about you and, and Atrium and, and following you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you want to learn more, uh, go to foundingsales.com. That's where my book on startup sales lives. If you run a sales organization of greater than, um, 10 SDRs plus AEs, go to atriumhq.com. We make amazing sales performance analysis software that does analysis for you. And if you're a sales leader or a sales operations person, uh, we run the nation's largest sales operations and leadership uh, community for high growth startups. It's called Modern Sales, and you can find that at modernsaleshq.com. Awesome. Uh, my guest today has been Pete Kazanji. Uh, Pete, thank you for, for dropping some knowledge today with our audience. My pleasure. You really put me through the paces, dude. <laughs> If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.